Section 3 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Introduction, Part 2. 2. 1. The idea of the universe which prevailed throughout the Middle Ages and the general orientation of men's thoughts were incompatible with some of the fundamental assumptions which are required by the idea of progress. According to the Christian theory which was worked out by the Fathers, and especially by St. Augustine, the whole movement of history has the purpose of securing the happiness of a small portion of the human race in another world. It does not postulate a further development of human history on earth. For Augustine, as for any medieval believer, the course of history would be satisfactorily complete if the world came to an end in his own lifetime. He was not interested in the question whether any gradual amelioration of society or increase of knowledge would mark the period of time which might still remain to run before the Day of Judgment. In Augustine's system, the Christian era introduced the last period of history, the old age of humanity, which would endure only so long as to enable the deity to gather in the predestined number of saved people. This theory might be combined with the widely spread belief in a millennium on earth, but the conception of such a dispensation does not render it a theory of progress. Again, the medieval doctrine apprehends history not as a natural development, but as a series of events ordered by divine intervention and revelations. If humanity had been left to go its own way, it would have drifted to a highly undesirable port, and all men would have incurred the fate of everlasting misery from which supernatural interference rescued the minority. A belief in providence might indeed, and in a future age would, be held along with a belief in progress in the same mind, but the fundamental assumptions were incongruous, and so long as the doctrine of providence was undisputedly in the ascendant, a doctrine of progress could not arise. And the doctrine of providence, as it was developed in Augustine's City of God, controlled the thought of the Middle Ages. There was, moreover, the doctrine of original sin, an insuperable obstacle to the moral amelioration of the race by any gradual process of development. For since, so long as the human species endures on earth, every child will be born naturally evil and worthy of punishment, a moral advance of humanity to perfection is plainly impossible. 2. But there are certain features in the medieval theory of which we must not ignore the significance. In the first place, while it maintained the belief in degeneration, endorsed by Hebrew mythology, it definitely abandoned the Greek theory of cycles. The history of the earth was recognized as a unique phenomenon in time. It would never occur again or anything resembling it. More important than all is the fact that Christian theology constructed a synthesis which, for the first time, attempted to give a definite meaning to the whole course of human events, a synthesis which represents the past as leading up to a definite and desirable goal in the future. Once this belief had been generally adopted and prevailed for centuries, men might discard it along with the doctrine of providence on which it rested, but they could not be content to return again to such views as satisfied the ancients, for whom human history, apprehended as a whole, was a tale of little meaning. They must seek for some new synthesis to replace it. Footnote. It may be observed that Augustine compares the teaching of the people of God in the gradual process of history to the education of an individual. Prudentius has a similar comparison for a different purpose. Tardis semper processibus aucta crescit vita hominis et longo proficit usu. Sic aevi mortalis habet semobilis ordo, sic variat natura vices infantia repeat, etc. Florus had already divided Roman history into four periods corresponding to infancy, adolescence, manhood, and old age. End of footnote. 
Another feature of the medieval theory, pertinent to our inquiry, was an idea which Christianity took over from Greek and Roman thinkers. In the later period of Greek history, which began with the conquests of Alexander the Great, there had emerged the conception of the whole inhabited world as a unity and totality, the idea of the whole human race as one. We may conveniently call it the ecumenical idea, the principle of the ecumene, or inhabited world, as opposed to the principle of the polis, or city. Promoted by the vast extension of the geographical limits of the Greek world resulting from Alexander's conquests, and by his policy of breaking down the barriers between Greek and barbarian, the idea was reflected in the Stoic doctrine that all men are brothers, and that a man's true country is not his own particular city, but the ecumene. Footnote. Plutarch long ago saw the connection between the policy of Alexander and the cosmopolitan teaching of Zeno. End of footnote. It soon became familiar, popularized by the most popular of the later philosophies of Greece, and just as it had been implied in the imperial aspiration and polity of Alexander, so it was implied, still more clearly, in the imperial theory of Rome. The idea of the Roman Empire, its theoretical justification, might be described as the realization of the unity of the world by the establishment of a common order, the unification of mankind in a single world-embracing political organism. The term world, orbis, terrarum, which imperial poets used freely in speaking of the empire, is more than a mere poetical or patriotic exaggeration. It expresses the idea, the unrealized ideal of the empire. There is a stone from Halicarnassus in the British Museum on which the idea is formally expressed from another point of view. The inscription is of the time of Augustus, and the emperor is designated as savior of the community of mankind. There we have the notion of the human race apprehended as a whole, the ecumenical idea, imposing upon Rome the task described by Virgil as regere imperio populos, and more humanely by Pliny as the creation of a single fatherland for all the peoples of the world. This idea, which in the Roman Empire and in the Middle Ages took the form of a universal state and a universal church, passed afterwards into the conception of the intercohesion of peoples as contributors to a common pool of civilization a principle which, when the idea of progress at last made its appearance in the world, was to be one of the elements in its growth. 3. One remarkable man, the Franciscan friar Roger Bacon, circa A.D. 1210 to 1292, who stands on an isolated pinnacle of his own in the Middle Ages, deserves particular consideration. It has been claimed for him that he announced the idea of progress. He has even been compared to Condorcet or Comte. Such claims are based on passages taken out of their context and indulgently interpreted in the light of later theories. They are not borne out by an examination of his general conception of the universe and the aim of his writings. His aim was to reform higher education and introduce into the universities a wide, liberal, and scientific program of secular studies. His chief work, the Opus Maius, was written for this purpose, to which his exposition of his own discoveries was subordinate. It was addressed and sent to Pope Clement IV, who had asked Bacon to give him an account of his researches, and was designed to persuade the pontiff of the utility of science from an ecclesiastical point of view, and to induce him to sanction an intellectual reform which without the approbation of the Church would at that time have been impossible. With great ingenuity and resourcefulness he sought to show that the studies to which he was devoted, mathematics, astronomy, physics, chemistry, were indispensable to an intelligent study of theology and scripture. Though some of his arguments may have been urged simply to capture the Pope's good will, 
There can be no question that Bacon was absolutely sincere in his view that theology was the mistress, dominatrix, of the sciences, and that their supreme value lay in being necessary to it. It was indeed on this principle of the close interconnection of all branches of knowledge that Bacon based his plea and his scheme of reform, and the idea of the solidarity of the sciences, in which he anticipated a later age, is one of his two chief claims to be remembered. It is the motif of the Opus Maius, and it would have been more fully elaborated if he had lived to complete the encyclopedic work, Scriptum Principale, which he had only begun before his death. His other title to fame is well known. He realized, as no man had done before him, the importance of the experimental method in investigating the secrets of nature, and was an almost solitary pioneer in the paths to which his greater namesake, more than three hundred years later, was to invite the attention of the world. But although Roger Bacon was inspired by these enlightened ideas, although he cast off many of the prejudices of his time and boldly revolted against the tyranny of the prevailing scholastic philosophy, he was nevertheless in other respects a child of his age, and could not disencumber himself of the current medieval conception of the universe. His general view of the course of human history was not materially different from that of St. Augustine. When he says that the practical object of all knowledge is to assure the safety of the human race, he explains this to mean things which lead to felicity in the next life. It is pertinent to observe that he not only shared in the belief in astrology, which was then universal, but considered it one of the most important parts of mathematics. It was looked upon with disfavor by the church as a dangerous study. Bacon defended its use in the interests of the church itself. He maintained, like Thomas Aquinas, the physiological influence of the celestial bodies, and regarded the planets as signs telling us what God has decreed from eternity to come to pass either by natural processes or by acts of human will or directly at his own good pleasure. Deluges, plagues, and earthquakes were capable of being predicted. Political and religious revolutions were set in the starry rubric. The existence of six principal religions was determined by the combinations of Jupiter with the other six planets. Bacon seriously expected the extinction of the Mohammedan religion before the end of the 13th century on the ground of a prediction by an Arab astrologer. One of the greatest advantages that the study of astrological lore will bring to humanity is that by its means the date of the coming of Antichrist may be fixed with certainty, and the Church may be prepared to face the perils and trials of that terrible time. Now the arrival of Antichrist meant the end of the world, and Bacon accepted the view, which he says was held by all wise men, that we are not far from the times of Antichrist. Thus the intellectual reforms which he urged would have the effect, and no more, of preparing Christendom to resist more successfully the corruption in which the rule of Antichrist would involve the world. Truth will prevail, by which he meant science will make advances, though with difficulty until Antichrist and his forerunners appear. And on his own showing, the interval would probably be short. The frequency with which Bacon recurs to this subject, and the emphasis he lays on it, show that the appearance of Antichrist was a fixed point in his mental horizon. When he looked forward into the future, the vision which confronted him was a scene of corruption, tyranny, and struggle under the reign of a barbarous enemy of Christendom, and after that the end of the world. It is from this point of view that we must appreciate the observations which he made on the advancement of knowledge. It is our duty, he says, quote, to supply what the ancients have left incomplete, because we have entered into their labors which, unless we are asses, can stimulate us to achieve better results. Aristotle corrected the errors of earlier thinkers. Avicenna and Averroes have corrected Aristotle in some matters, and have added much that is new, 
and so it will go on till the end of the world. And Bacon quotes passages from Seneca's Physical Inquiries to show that the acquisition of knowledge is gradual. Attention has been already called to those passages, and it was shown how perverse it is, on the strength of such remarks, to claim Seneca as a teacher of the doctrine of progress. The same claim has been made for Bacon with greater confidence, and it is no less perverse. The idea of progress is glaringly incongruous with his vision of the world. If his program of revolutionizing secular learning had been accepted, it fell completely dead and his work was forgotten for many ages, he would have been the author of a progressive reform. But how many reformers have there been before and after Bacon on whose minds the idea of progress never dawned? 4. Thus, Friar Bacon's theories of scientific reform, so far from amounting to an anticipation of the idea of progress, illustrate how impossible it was that this idea could appear in the Middle Ages. The whole spirit of medieval Christianity excluded it. The conceptions which were entertained of the working of divine providence, the belief that the world, surprised like a sleeping household by a thief in the night, might at any moment come to a sudden end, had the same effect as the Greek theories of the nature of change and of recurring cycles of the world. Or rather, they had a more powerful effect, because they were not reasoned conclusions, but dogmas guaranteed by divine authority. And medieval pessimism as to man's mundane condition was darker and sterner than the pessimism of the Greeks. There was the prospect of happiness in another sphere to compensate, but this, engrossing the imagination, only rendered it less likely that anyone should think of speculating about man's destinies on earth. 3. 1. The civilized countries of Europe spent about 300 years in passing from the mental atmosphere of the Middle Ages into the mental atmosphere of the modern world. These centuries were one of the conspicuously progressive periods in history, but the conditions were not favorable to the appearance of an idea of progress, though the intellectual milieu was being prepared in which that idea could be born. This progressive period, which is conveniently called the Renaissance, lasted from the 14th into the 17th century. The great results, significant for our present purpose, which the human mind achieved at this stage of its development were two. Self-confidence was restored to human reason, and life on this planet was recognized as possessing a value independent of any hopes or fears connected with a life beyond the grave. But in discarding medieval naivete and superstition, in assuming a freer attitude towards theological authority, and in developing a new conception of the value of individual personality, men looked to the guidance of Greek and Roman thinkers, and called up the spirit of the ancient world to exercise the ghosts of the Dark Ages. Their minds were thus directed backwards to a past civilization, which, in the ardor of new discovery, and in the reaction against medievalism, they enthroned as ideal, and a new authority was set up, the authority of ancient writers. In general speculation, the men of the Renaissance followed the tendencies and adopted many of the prejudices of Greek philosophy. Although some great discoveries, with far-reaching revolutionary consequences, were made in this period, most active minds were engaged in rediscovering, elaborating, criticizing, and imitating what was old. It was not till the closing years of the Renaissance that speculation began to seek and feel its way towards new points of departure. It was not till then that a serious reaction set in against the deeper influences of medieval thought. 2. To illustrate the limitations of this period, let us take Machiavelli, one of the most original thinkers that Italy ever produced. There are certain fundamental principles underlying Machiavelli's science of politics, which he has indicated incidentally in his unsystematic way, but which are essential to the comprehension of his doctrines. The first is that at all times the world of human beings has been the same, 
varying indeed from land to land, but always presenting the same aspect of some societies advancing towards prosperity and others declining. Those which are on the upward grade will always reach a point beyond which they cannot rise further, but they will not remain permanently on this level, they will begin to decline. For human things are always in motion and therefore must go up or down. Similarly, declining states will ultimately touch bottom and then begin to ascend. Thus, a good constitution or social organization can last only for a short time. It is obvious that in this view of history, Machiavelli was inspired and instructed by the ancients, and it followed from his premises that the study of the past is of the highest value because it enables men to see what is to come, since to all social events at any period there are correspondences in ancient times. Quote, for these events are due to men, who have and always had the same passions, and therefore of necessity, the effects must be the same. Quote. Again, Machiavelli follows his ancient masters in assuming as evident that a good organization of society can be effected only by the deliberate design of a wise legislator. Forms of government and religions are the personal creations of a single brain, and the only chance for a satisfactory constitution or for a religion to maintain itself for any length of time is constantly to repress any tendencies to depart from the original conceptions of its creator. It is evident that these two assumptions are logically connected. The lawgiver builds on the immutability of human nature. What is good for one generation must be good for another. For Machiavelli, as for Plato, change meant corruption. Thus his fundamental theory excluded any conception of a satisfactory social order gradually emerging by the impersonal work of successive generations, adapting their institutions to their own changing needs and aspirations. It is characteristic, and another point of resemblance with ancient thinkers, that he sought the ideal state in the past, Republican Rome. These doctrines, the sameness of human nature and the omnipotent lawgiver, left no room for anything resembling a theory of progress. If not held afterwards in the uncompromising form in which Machiavelli presented them, yet it has well been pointed out that they lay at the root of some of the most famous speculations of the 18th century. 3. Machiavelli's sameness of human nature meant that man would always have the same passions and desires, weaknesses and vices. This assumption was compatible with the widely prevailing view that man had degenerated in the course of the last 1500 years. From the exaltation of Greek and Roman antiquity to a position of unattainable superiority, especially in the field of knowledge, the degeneration of humanity was an easy and natural inference. If the Greeks in philosophy and science were authoritative guides, if in art and literature they were unapproachable, if the Roman Republic, as Machiavelli thought, was an ideal state, it would seem that the powers of nature had declined and she could no longer produce the same quality of brain. So long as this paralyzing theory prevailed, it is manifest that the idea of progress could not appear. But in the course of the 16th century, men began here and there, somewhat timidly and tentatively, to rebel against the tyranny of antiquity, or rather to prepare the way for the open rebellion which was to break out in the 17th. Breaches were made in the proud citadel of ancient learning. Copernicus undermined the authority of Ptolemy and his predecessors. The anatomical researches of Vesalius injured the prestige of Galen, and Aristotle was attacked on many sides by men like Telesio, Cardin, Ramos, and Bruno. In particular branches of science, an innovation was beginning which heralded a radical revolution in the study of natural phenomena, though the general significance of the prospect which these researches opened was but vaguely understood at the time. The thinkers and men of science were living in an intellectual twilight. 
It was the twilight of dawn. At one extremity we have mysticism, which culminated in the speculations of Bruno and Campanella. At the other we have the skepticism of Montaigne, Charon, and Sanchez. The bewildered condition of knowledge is indicated by the fact that while Bruno and Campanella accepted the Copernican astronomy, it was rejected by one who in many other respects may claim to be reckoned as a modern, I mean Francis Bacon. But the growing tendency to challenge the authority of the ancients does not sever this period from the spirit which informed the Renaissance, for it is subordinate or incidental to a more general and important interest to rehabilitate the natural man, to claim that he should be the pilot of his own course, to assert his freedom in the fields of art and literature, had been the work of the early Renaissance. It was the problem of the later Renaissance to complete this emancipation in the sphere of philosophical thought. The bold metaphysics of Bruno, for which he atoned by a fiery death, offered the solution which was most unorthodox and complete. His deification of nature and of man as part of nature involved the liberation of humanity from external authority. But other speculative minds of the age, though less audacious, were equally inspired by the idea of freely interrogating nature, and were all engaged in accomplishing the program of the Renaissance, the vindication of this world as possessing a value for man independent of its relations to any supermundane sphere. The raptures of Giordano Bruno and the sobrieties of Francis Bacon are here on common ground. The whole movement was a necessary prelude to a new age of which science was to be the mistress. It is to be noted that there was a general feeling of complacency as to the condition of learning and intellectual pursuits. This optimism is expressed by Rabelais. Gargantua, in a letter to Pantagruel, studying at Paris, enlarges to his son on the vast improvements in learning and education which had recently, he says, been brought about. Quote, All the world is full of savants, learned teachers, large libraries, and I am of opinion that neither in the time of Plato, nor of Cicero, nor of Papinian, were there such facilities for study as one sees now. It is indeed the study of the ancient languages and literatures that Gargantua considers in a liberal education, but the satisfaction at the present diffusion of learning, with the suggestion that here at least contemporaries have an advantage over the ancients, is the significant point. This satisfaction shines through the observation of Ramos that, quote, in one century we have seen a greater progress in men and works of learning than our ancestors had seen in the whole course of the previous fourteen centuries. Quote. Footnote. Guillaume Postel observed in his De Magistratibus Ateniensium Liber, 1541, that the ages are always progressing, secula semper proficere, and every day additions are made to human knowledge, and that this process would only cease if providence by war or plague or some catastrophe were to destroy all the accumulated stores of knowledge which have been transmitted from antiquity in books. What is known of the life of this almost forgotten scholar has been collected by G. Weil. He visited the East, brought back Oriental manuscripts, and was more than once imprisoned on charges of heresy. He dreamed of converting the Mohammedans and of uniting the whole world under the empire of France. End of footnote. In this last stage of the Renaissance, which includes the first quarter of the 17th century, soil was being prepared in which the idea of progress could germinate, and our history of its origin definitely begins with the work of two men who belonged to this age, Baudin, who is hardly known except to special students of political science, and Bacon, who is known to all the world. Both had a more general grasp of the significance of their own time than any of their contemporaries, and though neither of them discovered a theory of progress, they both made contributions to thought which directly contributed to its subsequent appearance. End of section 3